So here's a question for you. Suppose there are two boxes with pigeons and levers in them. In the first box, whenever the pigeon pushes the lever, it receives a reward of a morsel of food. And in the second box, the reward is a little more unpredictable. So when the pigeon pushes this lever, there's a chance that food appears. Now, in which of these two cases do you think the pigeon is likely to pull the lever more often? Welcome to the Work Brain Podcast. Hi, I'm Preeti Kautamarthi. I'm a behavioral scientist and I love all things related to understanding the human behavior. I'm Anupam Krishnamurthy. I'm interested in applying behavior science to solve real-world problems. At the Work Brain, we explore how we can apply interesting ideas from psychology and behavior science to our workplaces. In today's episode, we look at how games work the underlying psychology and how we can harness games in our professional lives. Now, back to the story involving the pigeons. The renowned and controversial psychologist B.F. Skinner carried out the experiment that I just spoke about with pigeons and rodents. So he used a infamous contraption called the Skinner box for carrying out these experiments and What he found was it turns out that the animals were way more active in the second case where their reward was unpredictable. Skinner observed that the animals pushed the liver even when they weren't hungry, just for fun. Interestingly, they were most active when the chance of receiving a reward was about 50%. Sounds familiar? In today's episode, we explore how games work and what motivates us to play them. We then look at game mechanics some concepts that are common to all the games that we play. We finally explore gamification, how we can bring an element of play to our work lives with some examples of companies and places where we already see this. But before we start off, um, Preeti, what is your favorite game? Well, I have a few favorite games, but the ones that I find extremely addictive are the most popular ones like, say, Candy Crush. I find myself playing a lot of levels on that. And the funny thing is, I think I got my mom addicted to it too. So even she plays Candy Crush now. Wow, okay. So usually it's the parents who are getting children out of game addictions and here you're doing the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) I want to explore this deeper, right? Like in terms of why we are, why we find games so addictive. So even if we have a particular um, agenda for the day, we still feel compelled to um, to procrastinate and instead play this game. So what motivates us to do that? I think the more important question is why are we not like that when we're thinking about work? Hmm. So um, in uh, psychology, one of the most intriguing things that people have tried to explore is that about motivation because all of this eventually comes down to motivation. What motivates us to do something and why are we not motivated to do certain things? Uh, one of the most popular papers in psychology is by the psychologists called Edward Deci and Richard Ryan. So they introduced the world to this idea of a range of motivations. And they call this theory the self-determination theory, which basically tells us about how motivation is behind the different kind of, kinds of choices that we make and how it actually ranges from something that's completely not motivating to something that's extrinsically motivated and something that's intrinsically motivated. So let me explain this with a very simple example. Mm -hmm. Say you want me to learn piano. 
and i'm not musically oriented so i'm not interested so that's complete lack of interest lack of competence i don't think that i can do this so you can keep telling me to do it but i may not do it because there is no motivation at all to do this particular activity say at some point you tell me that you know what if you learn piano i'll give you a thousand dollars every month hmm, sounds like a good deal i may think about doing it which means that you're putting in some kind of extrinsic lever to make me do this the other extreme of that would be um say parents telling kids that they have to learn piano otherwise they would be punished that's also an extrinsic lever if you think about it some some kind of extrinsic factor is making me want to do piano so these extrinsic factors come mainly in the terms of rewards and punishments that's one level at the next level say uh, now you compare me to others and say hey priti you know what everybody around you is playing the piano maybe you should play the piano so now the reward is actually not anything to do with monetary or non monetary but it's just ego and thinking about what others are doing and doing an activity because other people are doing it hmm like peer it's pressure it's still extrinsic exactly it's still extrinsic but it's beginning to move away from the idea of some kind of a reward or a punishment at the next level say i start playing the piano and i somehow make this connection and think hey people who play piano are cool people so suddenly i'm thinking that maybe if i learn piano i become cool or maybe i made some kind of an association and i feel like this activity is adding some kind of value to me so then i'm beginning to identify more and more with this activity and i'm moving from extrinsic towards intrinsic motivation yeah so this inspiration um lies probably in this zone exactly so it's somewhere there it's still not completely intrinsic i'm still doing it because i am forcing myself to add some kind of value to it so when does this actually become completely intrinsic that's the point where i do an activity just because of the sheer interest or joy that i get out of it so after all of this i start playing the piano because i actually love playing the piano i don't care about what others think i'm not interested in any reward or punishment i'm doing it because i love playing the piano and i may not play it in front of another person but i just do it because i love playing the piano so that is a completely intrinsically motivated activity right so doing an activity for its own sake is intrinsically exactly. motivated exactly i'll tell you a very good example of that so mm-hmm. you know how kids love picking up the broom and pretending like they're cleaning the house yeah that's an activity that as adults we completely hate doing it's uh, it's it's in that zone of a motivation yes but kids actually genuinely love the idea of trying to clean the house and act like they are the adults around that is a completely purely intrinsically motivated activity for them so why do kids find that intrinsically motivating whereas adults don't i think for them it's just something new and it's something that others are doing that they could not do and them getting a chance to do that just makes them feel like they have some kind of autonomy and some kind of agency in doing something and yeah i think this also happens when kids play house right like they yeah. pretend that they are adults and explore the adult world but exactly. yeah, as adults you don't have to explore that world it's it's reality so that novelty is gone <laughs> um even as we are talking about this i was thinking about um yeah since you mentioned pianos um how a lot of parents force their children into classical music and usually the motivation for the children is a reward or a punishment so it's completely 
to the left side when it comes to it's it's closer to the aim motivation side whereas for the parents themselves they are doing it because most other parents are doing it so they are mostly doing it uh because of peer pressure that's and, true and and that's why it really doesn't end up being successful and the people who actually go on to play in orchestras are people who somehow find that um playing the piano is a worthwhile activity in and of itself and they, those are the people who actually end up pr- practicing even when nobody's looking or nobody's asking them to yeah and in fact um, i was one of those my parents wanted me to learn classical music and i did learn for a period of time and i don't think i appreciated it at all at that point of time i was probably completely on the a motivation side but now years later when i do actually play the piano i think now i do it completely out of intrinsic motivation and somewhere i'm thankful that my parents at least introduced me to the idea of music at the right point in life yeah it's the exact same story with me but uh, yeah just instead of the piano i play the guitar but yeah completely relate to what you're saying here so now that we've looked at this motivation theory which goes from a motivation to extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation uh, how does this actually relate to games well as you can imagine for games uh, let's actually do a comparison between games and work while we're doing this for a lot of people work would be an extrinsic motivation you're doing something because you're getting something back but you see with the games that we were talking about like say candy crush or chess you see that we're doing the activity less for the reward and more from the pleasure that we're actually getting from the activity which means they lie more on the side of intrinsic motivation than on the side of extrinsic motivation but um i want to clarify something here i mean whether it's uh, candy crush or or chess or even the example that we saw with the pigeons there is a reward so the pigeon does get a reward if it pulls the lever whether it's predictable or unpredictable in the absence of this reward i think the experiment would not function right uh that's completely true but here's the thing suppose you didn't get a salary a fixed salary but you had a variable salary do you think that would make a difference to how you are doing your job yeah i mean i think when it comes to variable salary or even having a stake in the company that you work i think that changes the outlook that you have towards work exactly so i think the whole idea of a reward in a game is i sure the reward is very important and it is one of the motivations why people do things but also that the nature of the reward starts changing so it's not a it's not a predictable reward that's making you play that game but it is that whole idea of winning and the joy of winning that makes you play the game the best example for that is a casino i mean all of us know that we are statistically there is no way it's po- it's possible for us to win because the casinos the house always wins but we still go there and we still keep trying because there is that intrinsic joy of possibly winning um yeah coming to think of the pigeon example again that's similar to what we saw when the pigeon was sure of getting the food it didn't actually trigger the liver as often but whereas when it was unpredictable the pigeon was triggering the river even when it was not hungry so yes the reward probably plays a role here yeah. but at some point the pigeon starts to pulling that liver just for the sake of pulling the liver exactly when when you spoke about rewards like what kind of rewards are we talking about here do these rewards also have a particular range where some of them are more towards the intrinsic side or are all of them extrinsic no i mean like even in the examples that we've been discussing till now we could see that there are different types of rewards there is of course the monetary 
extrinsic rewards like actual money or punishment and stuff and then there are other things like when you start moving towards intrinsic social status starts mattering you want to see you want others to you see you in a certain way then there is unpredictability in a reward then there is the sheer fun and joy that you get out of doing an activity so there are different types of rewards that are possible um and roughly i think it's always more uh, desirable to have an intrinsic motivation i mean both on the employee side exactly. as well as on the employer side um yeah so when a task needs to be done and most of these are difficult tasks like sweeping the house or cleaning the house which nobody wants to do how can you convert it from its extrinsic to intrinsic so going back to the self determination theory we spoke about which ryan and dechi gave one of the things that they speak about in this particular paper is about the three psychological needs that are needed to move people from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation so the first of those is competence which is basically making people feel like they're competent enough to do a particular activity and giving them the feeling that as they are doing the activity they are getting better and better at it so if we go back to your example of an orchestra player or somebody who's picking up an instrument and continues practicing because they actually think they want to do better for themselves that's actually a very good example of competence because that's an that's how an extrinsic motivation became intrinsic because they they can see their skill getting better and their only motivation is to get better and better and get more and more competent in that particular area right so competence is to do with skill level and proficiency exactly uh, the second thing they talk about is relatedness which is basically how related you feel to the rest of the people and how much of a social activity is this how much can you actually uh, look at others and see what others are doing and make it feel more and more like a social thing rather than just something that you're doing on your own and when it comes to playing instruments um like forming a band versus playing all by yourself is a good example here perhaps exactly that's a very good point and the third area they talk about is uh, autonomy which is basically how much agency and choice you have in doing an activity so again going back to our previous example of parents forcing their kids to learn music as compared to say you and me who picked up an instrument much later in life and now suddenly we feel like we love playing this instrument i think when we were younger we felt like we didn't have a choice in it and it seemed like a forced thing but now that we actually have the agency and the autonomy to choose this and do it we feel more intrinsically motivated to actually do this particular activity yeah completely and uh, this is one thing that i think classical music or how classical music is taught needs to change where in classical music you usually play works which are already written down and it's pretty rigid it doesn't let you explore too much and w- when i started playing the guitar i looked at looked at more freer forms of music like say uh, rock and roll or jazz which which encourage you to have your own variations or cover songs in a different way that's very true actually i never thought about it like that but you're right in that classical music does keep us very restricted to certain forms and certain patterns in order to go from extrinsic to intrinsic three factors are key that is competence relatedness and autonomy so maybe we could uh, go on to explore these concepts with examples in the in the following section of this episode 
So now look, let's look at what makes these games work, at least from the three axes that we've explored, that is competence, relatedness, and autonomy. Um, when it comes to competence, like what is some of the theory behind this? I think the thing about competence is that people need to feel like they are growing, that their skill level is growing, and so is the challenge that is being given to them. So uh, let me see if I can get this name right. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was a very famous psychologist who gave this theory called the flow state. So that basically says there's people's ability versus the difficulty of a task that you give them. Now, uh, you can imagine if somebody is not so skilled at something, but you give them something very challenging to do, it will only cause anxiety. And when you cause somebody anxiety, they're probably not going to want to do it. It's like, I don't know how to swim and you tell me to do scuba diving. I'm not going to be interested. I'll be anxious to even think about that activity and I probably won't do it. Right. At the other end of the spectrum would be that I'm extremely skilled at something and you're not challenging me enough. You're not giving me something that's challenging. So then I get bored very easily. So the so sustaining the right amount of challenges is key in building somebody's competence. Exactly. So the, what this particular framework talks about is that there is a flow zone, which is basically finding that right zone between the user's ability and the difficulty of the challenge that you're giving them. So when somebody is in a flow state, as your ability increases, so does the challenge you are being given uh, increases. A simple example is, say, in Candy Crush, you start out with very easy levels. And as you start getting better, the difficulty of the levels also starts going up. Coming back to uh, flow and research by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who happens to be the psychologist uh, with, my, with my favorite name, when it comes to flow states that he describes, there's also some other attribute that he mentions about when a, p- a particular activity is at the light, right level of difficulty, we feel so engaged and engrossed in that activity that um, we, are, we, we lose consciousness with the rest of the world. And this tends to happen when we are doing something super interesting. And it happens almost with every game that we play and that we enjoy playing. Let's explore the second facet, which is relatedness. So in relatedness is basically all about making people feel connected to others who are doing the activity. And uh, of of course, the easiest way of doing that is with leaderboards. Uh, People have this need to connect with other people and to know where they stand. So uh, this basically, in games, you have these options to invite others, to share your wins, to uh, see where you stand amongst your friends. So all of that is actually a way of making you feel like a part of a larger group that's playing the game so that you feel more related to the activity and continue playing. Fitness apps do this really well when it comes to apps like Fitbit or Strava. So you always, um, you have, you have, you're connected among your friends and you can see how they are working out and then you're also motivated to work out. I think one catch here though is that In the theory, relatedness is less about competition and more about just feeling connected to others without ulterior motives. Um, I think sometimes in games, we still have some kind of competition and we still want to feel better about ourselves. Totally. uh, Other parts of the game, for example, sharing your wins with others or, uh, you know, just inviting your friends to play along with you. I think those are still things that increase relatedness. 
another way in which uh, people can feel related to others is if there is a larger cause that is actually connecting them so one of the drivers of gamification is uh, meaning or you know what is it that actually gets people to uh, take part in something something he feels like he's been chosen to do a particular task or a game um, maybe one simple example of that would be uh, the contributors to wikipedia i mean there's no reason for them to do it given that it's a completely voluntary job but they still do it because they feel like they are serving a very important cause and that cause is giving information to the world so sometimes it's the cause that actually gets people together and motivates them to keep playing the game and i think a lot of games use this in different ways for example the kind of narratives they build around calling you the hero and making you feel like you're the one who's taking this game forward and stuff moving on to autonomy so how are ways in which games bring in the autonomy what are the various ways in which it does well actually there are many ways uh, one of them which all of us are quite used to thanks to social media is customization so the way we build up our profile the way we because the profile is basically what people see of us so we are very attached to it and we put up our best pictures there and you know we use our best images we use the best status messages so that's actually us being given an option to show who we are games do that as well so in games you are allowed to you know purchase new clothes for your character you can purchase new personas you can purchase new avatars so all of this is basically making you feel like you own yourself in this game and that you you have the choice and you are choosing to do this and you're building this up for yourself another aspect in which uh, games bring in autonomy is for any given game you can win it in an almost infinite number of ways so since you can get to a win in a particular game through your own strategy or your own uh, moves i think that's where there's also a sense of autonomy right yeah that's very true uh, giving people that choice and giving making people feel like they have a role to play in their destiny in the game is actually all about autonomy and making people feel like they own this so now that we have explored these facets in greater detail uh, in the next section what we could do is uh, we could see how businesses harness gamification and in what different ways these aspects are actually invoked so preeti um in the business context or in the context of organizations what are some of your most popular examples of how gamification is used firstly uh, trying to define the term gamification here i mean what i understand from gamification is using game related concepts in a non game context a non game context could be something like getting work done or getting uh, marketing to customers yeah absolutely so gamification basically re- refers to using game mechanics in the context of a non game world let me ask you a question did you know that every day in china millions of people grow virtual chickens like they literally have a small chicken on their phone and no way they keep growing these chickens uh, they get to buy clothes for the chicken they get to do chicken olympics races with their friends so that for me is like when i learned about it it was eye opening so in china all the major e-commerce companies have used gamification in ways that we cannot even imagine so the one i am talking about right now is by alibaba 
and it's called uh, alipay's chicken farm so for every activity that you do on the app you have a virtual chicken and you get feed for the chicken and then as you keep getting feed and the chicken keeps growing bigger you keep doing different stuff with the chicken you get to dress it up you get to race it with others you can even use it for social causes you can use your points for charity and wow. interestingly there's another part of alipay which is also very different so this one's called the ant farm where basically for every activity you do you get to plant a tree a virtual tree and then as you keep doing stuff the tree keeps growing and uh, for everything so every login for every transaction you get more air for your tree and the tree grows there are leaderboards you can see how many trees the others have grown and the best part about this particular activity is that at the end of it alipay actually plants trees for what the people are doing so i think last year sometime alipay announced that more than half a million people had helped it plant millions of trees across china and all because of a game that's there on their platform okay so let me get this straight lots of people in china have virtual pets and virtual gardens yeah and these virtual gardens translate to real world gardens also that's yeah. what the company does exactly uh, and you can see it, at how many levels it actually makes use of, use of gamification i mean they made the whole act of transacting on their platform so gamified that people come back to do it again and again you have the whole aspect of competence in that you have a you get to uh, you know uh, do different things you get a variable reward you may get a dress for your chicken you may get something completely different and there is also the aspect of relatedness because you have a leaderboard you can see what others are doing you can compete with others who are uh, who have chickens it sounds like a role play game but with virtual chickens it's pretty much that okay i'm trying to understand the business model here so how does alibaba gain out of this well for alibaba it's a simple business metric it's consumer engagement we've done this research with some people in china where we were trying to understand how they actually why they actually play these games and there were such amazing comments that they were giving for instance somebody said uh, he used to wake up at 8 in the morning but now he wakes up at 7 in the morning because he gets a message from uh, alipay saying if you don't log in now somebody is going to steal your energy and then your tree won't have enough energy yeah i i get the engagement but i also i'm a little concerned about how people can drive themselves to play this game too hard that and that's always a negative impact of gamification probably we could go into some of the specific places in which gamification is used in in companies let's say for instance um in training and development that is where we see gamification being used a lot in terms of onboarding employees and getting them on to speed with certain topics yeah absolutely i think most uh, most uh, training and development programs are now gamified and you can see your progress you can see where you stand on it and i think they have also started using a lot of mechanics like leaderboards and giving you points and stuff i think a lot of them also take cue from apps like duolingo because duolingo is probably out there probably one of the best apps out there in learning and development and the way they use all these mechanics like showing you streaks telling you when you're losing out on streaks and stuff is actually very fascinating although i do feel like their notifications tend to get quite passive aggressive at times Yeah I, I, one point I was so hooked on Duolingo that uh, when I went on a trek somewhere and I didn't have internet connection I gave it to a friend and asked asked them to keep up the streak by playing a little every day There you go because you don't want to lose out on your streaks 
a very typical example that comes um, to mind with training and development is Flight Simulator, which was originally used to train pilots how to fly and then turned into a game of its own. So this is an interesting example where gamification led to games yeah. as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, that's true. My favorite use of gamification in the professional world has to do with customer support. Now, most people are likely, I mean, we are, as people, we are helpful in nature and we like to help other people out. But a gamified portal helps to accelerate this uh, to a large extent. We see this happening already with Amazon reviews or with TripAdvisor. So with TripAdvisor, if you leave good reviews, you probably get some airline miles and things like that. But my favorite application of uh, customer support is actually Stack Overflow. So Stack Overflow is uh, is a forum where uh, developers can ask any questions and get them answered by other developers. And what Stack Overflow does really well is how they build the gamification experience around. So uh, for answering each question or even asking good questions, you get badges or you get points. And these badges are pretty clever, right? They are quite quirky. So for instance, if you edit an answer, which was asked more than six months back, you get this badge called the archaeologist. Ah, and, interesting. Uh, okay, so I think so. Uh, the same uh, similar thing is there in TripAdvisor as well. Like I keep getting for a review that I gave, I don't know, three years back, I keep getting notifications from TripAdvisor telling me how many people have seen it and uh, what kind of a status I'm now enjoying in the TripAdvisor world. So I think um, the whole idea of outsourcing uh, reviews to customers and getting user-generated content by gamifying it is actually a very great idea for companies because it cuts on their costs, but at the same time, it gives something back to the users as well. So one other thing that comes to mind pretty immediately is marketing, and which is custom, which uh, manifests itself as customer loyalty or um, such, such as airlines and hotel points, which uh, I used to collect fervently as a, during my consulting days. Of course, every consultant is known to do that. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, I asked one of my colleagues what his hobbies were, and he thought about it for quite some time. And then he told me, yeah, I like collecting hotel and airline points. Having been in consulting for quite some time, coming back to the rewards and in, like extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, I know that most of these airline miles as well as these hotel points are essentially worthless. If you collect 20,000 miles, it actually means you can travel something like 20 miles, <laughs> realistically. Yeah, that's true. Right? But people still do it in spite of knowing this because they do it for its own sake, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Just after, the sake of collecting these points. Yeah, I guess after a point of time, it also becomes a status symbol. If I remember the movie Up in the Air where George Clooney talks about this. And it actually does become like a matter of status that this person is in this particular tier in the airline. We've looked at a host of applications of gamifications in training and development, customer support and marketing and loyalty. But here I want to touch upon competition versus collaboration. So when it comes to gamification, it can very quickly get competitive. Um, we've seen board games where uh, close friends are at each other's throats by the end of the game. There are adults who are totally taunting little children and making them cry. We've seen these play out in various events with our friends and families. Do you have some thoughts on how companies can balance competition and collaboration here? I think, uh, I mean, we've, we've spoken about this earlier as well. I think it's a thin line, but uh, there is a limit to how much you can gamify. 
and uh, this is something that has come up in my work multiple times and in the context of various other companies as well that as responsible people who are creating these games we should be knowing the ethics and we should be knowing when we are pushing people to do something um, by pulling the lo- the wrong lever so if we know that somebody is too much into a game then it's almost our ethical responsibility to stop them the same way whether that's in a game or whether that's in a gamification in a business context either way i think the responsibility actually lies with the person designing the game to ensure that we don't cross any of these ethical lines into into a place where people feel like they're being manipulated right so it is a conscious effort then to make sure that ethics stay in line and when it comes to competition versus collaboration i also i'm reminded of some board games where people collaborate and play against the board i think there's this game called pandemic which does this mm, yeah that would be an interesting thing to think about wrapping up this episode why do you think gamification is so important let me actually bring in another last example and this was actually something really heartwarming that i read about very recently in indonesia 37% of children under the age of 5 have stunted growth and the way to stop that would be to actually do breastfeeding at the right time and this has been a problem that a lot of developing countries have been trying to solve for a very long period of time and they haven't been able to and then recently i realized i read about this paper where uh, Uh, a group of people from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine did some experiments and they actually managed to crack the code and you know what they did they actually used games they would create games where the women would have like a sudden moment and they would realize that what they're doing is wrong for example there's this one game where they would tell the mother to pack her things for the day and they would tell another mm-hmm. mother to also pack her things for the day the difference is that one of them would be breastfeeding the other would be using formula milk and they would show through that exercise that it takes a lot more time when you are trying to pack for formula milk as opposed to breastfeeding and this way they have i think around 24 games and they've been using this to teach millions of mothers about uh, the importance of breastfeeding our tendency to play games can be harnessed to do tremendous social good if used appropriately yeah, yeah my own motivation for actually getting on and doing this episode is pretty related to a question that you asked before as opposed to asking why games are interesting and why work is not why not ask the opposite question if games are what we naturally do why isn't work why doesn't work resemble a game already and here i'd like to quote our uh, favorite psychologist mihai chiksen mihai again the more a job inherently resembles a game with variety appropriate and flexible challenges clear goals and immediate feedback the more enjoyable it will be so on that note uh, we can conclude this episode uh, we can you can follow us at the work brain on twitter at that's the work brain all written out you'll find references and recommended readings for this episode at our linkedin page linkedin.com/company/theworkbrain we would love to hear your thoughts about this episode please drop us a note at theworkbrain@gmail.com the visual design for the podcast as well as the music was made in house thank you for tuning in and until next time